0: We hope you're blessed and encouraged by the following study from Calvary Chapel, El Mani. It's our simple prayer that you would grow stronger and deeper in an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Should you have any questions, please feel free to contact us here at Calvary Chapel, El Mani. Luke chapter 13, and today we're going to go through verses 31 through 35. I read a story uh, about uh, a missionary. His name is Adoniram Judson. I guess when the wife of missionary Adoniram Judson told him that a newspaper article likened him to some of the apostles, Judson replied, I do not want to be like Paul or any mere man. I want to be like Christ. I want to follow him only, copy his teachings, drink in his spirit, and place my feet in his footprints. Oh, to be more like Christ. And I think that's so cool. I think that's probably why the Lord used his life in such a great way. You know, and today we have the opportunity of just looking at Jesus. I love it when we can just look at Jesus and see the way he is. Because look what you read here in verse 31, Luke 13. It says, On that very day some Pharisees came, saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. Today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and in the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together together As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. And assuredly, I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Today we just get to look at Jesus. And I think that in and of itself, it's worth it, man, just to look at his life and see the way that he saved us. But I also think, and I just can't help but you know, do this whenever I study his life, you know, to want to be like him, especially if you're a leader, especially if you aspire to be in leadership. First thing we see about Jesus is his tremendous courage. Again, notice it says in verse 31, on that very day. Now, what day is Luke writing about? Well, if you were here last week, we studied that on that day, Jesus told the Jewish leaders that religion or race was not enough. If you remember, it was on that day, Jesus revealed the fact that many of them were not going to heaven because of the false teachers who were teaching false teachings and giving people a false assurance. In other words, Jesus offended them with his words of warning. He offended them with his true teachings. And so what happened, and this probably took time to, you know, to to, to happen, but There was some type of plot between Herod and the religious leaders to take Jesus out, to move Jesus out of the perfect plan and will of his father. And so they came to him and they said, Hey, you better split, man, because Herod is after you. He's coming to kill you. Now, apparently, uh, there was some truth to this, for Jesus did respond with a message to Herod. But at the same time, we know the Pharisees didn't care about Jesus. Why would they warn them? How do you figure? Well, what we see is the Lord is experiencing a common opposition, a strategy of Satan. It's a tactic in which he attempts to move the people of God out of the will of God by striking fear into their hearts. And if they could simply move Jesus out of the will of God, then they would win. And so they tried to strike fear into his heart. Uh, I think you guys know, huh? The fear factor, it's pretty powerful. You know, I don't know if you realize this or not, but a lot of people make a lot of decisions based on fear and safety. You know, for example, a lot of people won't evangelize. They won't share their faith because they're afraid of what others will think of them. There's a lot of people like that. They're afraid to speak or they won't go down to Mexico on a short-term missions trip. Why? Because they're afraid of what might happen to them. What will they think of me? What will they say of me? What will they do to me? And that keeps you from doing the perfect plan of the Father. You know, I I don't know if you guys ever thought about this one, but some people won't let their children go on a missions trip because they're afraid that they might like it too much. I want to be a full-time missionary. Lord, I don't want to lose my son. (laughs) You know, there are fears, I think, that the enemy puts in our heart. And he will attempt, through fear, to move us out of the perfect will of God. You guys remember David and Goliath? You guys remember that whole story? When Goliath came he was a 9-foot giant and there were the armies of the Philistines and there was the armies of Israel and Goliath came out and he reproached the living God. But there was Saul and all the soldiers paralyzed not doing anything. Why? Because they were afraid. And what happens? David comes onto the scene and David said, "What's up, man? What's this guy saying?" You know, I can take him. I know the Lord is... God will deliver him into my hands. And there was the whole nation afraid. And one man had faith. You'd be surprised how many decisions we make based on fear. The enemy will come in and that's the tactic. Jesus, get out of town. Split. Herod wants to kill you. They just wanted to move him out of the perfect will of God. It happens a lot. You know, when I read this story, I can't help but think of Nehemiah chapter 6. If you want to go over to Nehemiah real quick. You know, Nehemiah was pretty short. He was the Nehemiah, right? I'm sure you've heard of this guy. But Nehemiah, if you remember, was used by the Lord to help build the walls around Jerusalem. They did such a tremendous job. They did it in 52 days. He was a tremendous leader, a tremendous leader. But in Nehemiah chapter 6, he was experiencing opposition throughout the whole time. Uh, And then they came with the same strategy they came to Jesus with. It says in Nehemiah chapter 6, if you'll notice right here the crazy content of a letter used by the enemies to try to strike fear into Nehemiah's heart. They gave him this letter. This is what it says in verse 6. And it was written, It is reported among the nations in Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall, that you may be their king. And you also have appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. They said, Hey, Nehemiah, we know what you're doing. You're you know, raising a rebellion, and we're going to write a letter to the king. And he's going to come, and he's going to kill you, right? And so in verse 8, Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they all were trying to make us what? Afraid. Saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Afterward, I came to the house of Shema'iah, the son of Delaiah, the son of... Mehetabel, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let us close the doors of the temple for they're coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. Sound familiar? (laughs) And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. You see, when it comes to leadership, when it comes to staying in the perfect plan and will of God, we cannot have the fear of man, only the fear of God. Nehemiah was a great leader. He would not allow them to strike fear into his heart. He said, no, I will not flee. And of course, he got that from Jesus Christ, from his God who put that inside of him. We have another example over in the book of Acts when Paul the Apostle was on his way to Jerusalem. God really tested him, revealing to him in advance the trials that were ahead. Things that would make most men turn back. Rejection, incarceration, possible execution. Most men would turn back due to the fear factor. But Paul took courage and he chose to face those fears with a greater fear. And that is the fear of God. Why? Because he just wanted to stay in the will of God. I want to encourage you to base your decisions on how the Lord leads your life. You know, and the only way you're going to have that is in a personal relationship with Him. You know, do you guys pray? Do you read the Word with an open heart so that God can direct your steps? That's the only way to be led by the Lord. It must not be, well, this is a dangerous situation and this isn't. You know, there's another example in the Gospel of Matthew when the angel appeared to Joseph and said, Leave, flee, because Herod wants to kill you. Herod wants to kill the baby. And so Joseph left. And so there was times to make those types of decisions. But the only way you'll know is if you and I have an intimate and personal relationship with God. And He'll tell you, Stop. He'll tell you, Go. That's the only way you'll know. But don't make your decisions based on fear. We see back in Luke 13, the devil was trying to veer Jesus off course with the threat of Herod wanting to kill him. You know, I know a little bit of how this feels. You know, I remember one time before I was a Christian, there was this girl that I was kind of going out with. And prior to our relationship, she had been dating a gang member that didn't want to let her go. And so one day I was at a party and my friend came up to me and he said, Manny, these guys are here to get you. And, you know, this gang was known for doing some very serious damage to people, right? And so I looked around and I noticed the fact that I didn't have any backup. And so I said, I'm out of here, you know? (laughs) You know, I didn't have courage that night because I didn't have any backup. Jesus had some big-time backup, huh? His father. And therefore, he was never afraid. I hope we know, I hope you know, that our Father is with us. He'll provide for you. He'll protect you. The grace of God will keep you wherever the will of God will lead you. You just got to follow the Lord. Don't be afraid. The most common command in the Bible. And the Bible says in 1 John 4.18 that perfect love casts out fear. In Psalm chapter 11, verse 1, the psalmist says, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? No, we don't do that. We follow the Lord. Jesus would not flee. He did not fear. He always followed his Father by faith. Because he knows, and, and we should know, that the safest place to be is in the perfect will of God. I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, A man without courage is a knife without an edge. Jesus had edge. He had courage. Thank God for that. And so they came to Jesus with the threat, and we see his response in verse 32. He said to them, Go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. You see, first of all, the courage of Jesus. We see, secondly, the commitment of Jesus. You know, Jesus calls Herod a fox. Now, it doesn't mean he was good looking, okay? (laughs) It's actually descriptive of someone who was sly and crafty. And, you know, this isn't an empty accusation against a political leader. It was a true statement, an actual fact about this man we know. His name was Herod. He's the son of Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, He was the man, think about this, you guys, he stole his brother's wife. I mean, how, you know, awful is that? Married her, right? He's the man who superstitiously feared John the Baptist, but then hypocritically killed him. Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great, identified in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, as a tetrarch of Galilee. And we'll read later that Herod eventually wanted to meet Jesus so he can see if Jesus would do some type of miracle for him. But you know the interesting thing? This guy was so bad. He was such a low person that Jesus did not even speak a single word to him. It's heavy, huh? That's how bad this guy was. We read that in Luke 23, 7 through 11. It says, go tell that fox what's really going on. Jesus basically says to the Pharisees, go tell Herod that I'm committed to doing my father's will. I'm helping the people right now. I'm driving out demons. I'm healing the sick. I'm committed to my father. And I'm not afraid. I'm not flaky. There's work to be done here among the people. And I just love the heart of the Lord, man. You know how he had the courage because he knew he had backup and he had the commitment to the people and to his Father. How huge and what a difference it makes to the people. Think about those who are demon-possessed. What a difference Christ has made to those who are demon-possessed, to those who are you know, physically ill and hurting and ailing to us. How Jesus was committed to help us. Think about the place that we came from, you guys. Think about how when we used to be dead, we didn't know anything spiritual at all. We didn't, you know, we were in bondage. But Jesus was committed to the work of His Father, and He set us free. I love it. I just love the way the Lord is. The Lord says, No, you go tell Herod that I've got work to do, and when I'm done, then I'll split. When Jesus said today and tomorrow and the third day, the point that He's making, and He says it again later, was that He had a mission in His mind, and that He would continue on the schedule the Father had set for Him. Warren Wiersbe calls it a divine timetable. Jesus said here that on the third day He would be perfected. The Greek word means to carry through completely, to accomplish, to finish. He doesn't leave until He finishes. As a matter of fact, the New English translation says, I will complete my work. And that was Jesus' heart. Jesus says, Tell Herod I'm staying here till I'm done, and I'm not afraid of him. And you Pharisees, you need to know that I'm staying here till I'm done, and I will not allow anything to move me from my mission." You know, when I think of this, it brings to mind the words of Paul the Apostle. When he was on his way to Jerusalem, there were many warnings being given to him in reference to the danger that lie ahead. You know, and as we have a mission in life, you know, and I spoke a little bit about something on Thursday that I think is relatable to this. You know, we get tested. We get tested in life. How many times do we fail those tests? How many people really pass the test? When you have the future and the calling and the ministry, and we all do, some might be pastors, some might be missionaries, but somewhere in the kingdom of God we have a place and we have a job to do. Now when it comes to that, are we following through or are we allowing certain things to deter us and to get us off track? Because the bottom line is there's only one life and soon it will pass and only what's done for Christ will last, right? And we have to remember that. We've been given gifts. We have to give back to the body. Jesus right here is an example to us. Paul the Apostle was just like him. In Acts chapter 20, verse 22, he says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, they were telling Paul, don't go. You're going to get arrested. You're going to be bound. You're going to go to prison. And so most people, if looking at that, you I might die. Forget it. I'm not going to go. Paul said, man, none of these things move me. I'm bound in the spirit, and what, thank God that he went. He did go to Jerusalem. He did get beat up. That probably hurt, huh? When was the last time you got beat up? Just out of curiosity, you know? Not good. Got beat up, got arrested, but when he was in, in, in prison, you know what he did? He started winning the soldiers to Jesus Christ. And he wrote a letter, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, Second Timothy, he wrote books of the Bible when he was in prison. You know, and God will lead you. I'll be honest with you, and we're praying about going back to Cambodia next year, okay? I don't want to go. I don't want to go because it's too hot and humid over there, man. And the food's not good, and I remember what it did to me, and I remember how I couldn't breathe, and I remember just a lot of the difficulties. I remember that it took 27 days on the airplane. I don't want to go back, right? Because, man, it's just, it's hard. But then when I think, and I think, and of course I've got to pray, and we all have to pray, but when I think, Lord, but the ministry that took place, the mission, Lord, don't let those things be the factor. Lord, lead my life. And that's the way we have to be. Paul would not be moved from his mission no matter what. And of course, we know he got that from Jesus. Because Jesus wouldn't either. We read Jesus' words in John four thirty-four, where he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. The courage of Jesus, the commitment of Jesus. You know, recently I was blessed to speak at a local church and I was asked to speak on commitment in ministry. And it's something that our Lord definitely modeled. We see, first of all, the courage of Jesus, the commitment of Jesus, secondly. And then thirdly, we see the cross of Jesus. Because look what it says here in verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey today, tomorrow, and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish outside of Jerusalem. In the Father's timing, Jesus would go to Jerusalem. Not to sightsee, but to save. Not for vacation, but for salvation. He would set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem to be condemned by the human authorities and sentenced to die on a cross. He would then establish not a religion, but rather a possible beautiful relationship with God that we can have as we repent of our sins and receive Christ as Lord and Savior. He said, I do have to go to Perea. I do need to go to Jerusalem. A place known to reject God's messengers. I must eventually leave this place, but it's not because Herod wants to kill me. It's because the devil wants to kill you. And I got to go and die. That's what's really going on. You know, in John 10.10, it says, A thief does not come except to kill and to steal and to destroy. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Jesus said, I need to leave this place, yes, but it's not because the religious leaders want me out. It's because I want to pull people out of the fires of hell. I want to encourage you guys to look at our Lord and to see how he is. Look at his courage. Look at his commitment. His commitment to the cross, to go and to die for our sins. We need to have the same heart, you guys. And so what happened? Our Savior died on that cross for all of our sins. This is in Philippians two eight. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Aren't you glad he went to the cross? Aren't you glad he wasn't flaky? Aren't you glad he wasn't fearful? Isn't Jesus awesome? Don't you want to follow him? You know, we see that here. The Lord said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to arrest me. I'm going to go and I will die. You see the courage of Jesus, the commitment of Jesus, the cross of Jesus. We then see the compassion of Jesus again in verse 34, in which Jesus laments. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hand gathers her brood under her wings. But you... We're not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Because of the fact that the nation of Israel, led astray by its leaders, rejected Jesus Christ, they would be judged severely. And for this reason, Jesus laments, Jesus mourns, Jesus weeps, Jesus cries. And I'm not sure most people know this, but you need to know that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. As a matter of fact, we read in Ezekiel 33 verse 11, "Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die?" O house of Israel. You see, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He mourns over them. He weeps over them. And he does so repeatedly. Jesus says right here, how often I wanted you to me, Jesus says. You know, it's been said that the dew of compassion is a tear. Jesus had a lot of dew. Jesus weeps over the people here in Luke chapter 13. It's interesting. I don't know if you knew this, but he does it again in Luke 19:41 through 42. Right after he enters into Jerusalem, he then weeps again in the same way two days later after denouncing the Pharisees when the religious leaders fully rejected him. You see, he mourns over and over and over again. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. A hen. Think about that. It's pretty interesting, huh? Pretty interesting picture of God. Have you ever thought of God as a hen before? (laughs) Well, he kind of is. There's definitely a hint of tenderness here. This is what G. Campbell Morgan called the mother heart of God. Paul the Apostle wrote something similar in 1 Thessalonians 2.7 to the people. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. Now, there's tenderness in God's teaching. We see that here with the picture of a hen. But the primary picture, I think, with this hen is the picture of protection. Jesus wanted to protect the people. You know, I went on YouTube the other day and I was just looking up hens. I'm weird like stuff, you know. I said, what's a hen? How does this all, what does it look like? And I found this one video. Um, it's pretty cool, man. These little chicks, you just they hide underneath the hen's feathers. You can't even see the chicks. It's a trip. And uh, and that's, that's what the Lord wants to do for us, you know. We read some interesting things. When I read this, if, if you want, go over to Psalm 91. I know a lot of you are probably familiar with this. But look what it says in Psalm 91 in verse 1. The safety that God provides, the safety of salvation. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him I will trust. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. He shall cover you, notice, with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. Isn't that cool, you guys? To be under the Lord's protection, salvation. You know, Ruth placed herself under the saving protection of God. We read in Ruth chapter 2 verse 12 where Boaz is speaking to Ruth and he says, The Lord repay your work and a full reward be given you by the Lord, God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. You know what's the cool thing? I was thinking about this right here. A lot of you, probably most of you, hopefully all of you, have come under the wings of his protection, huh? Isn't that cool? just like Ruth did, so you have as well. I encourage you to place yourself under God's protection, maybe even praying for it. Psalm 17:8 is a really cool psalm. It's a prayer. It says, "Keep me as the apple of your eye, hide me under the shadow of your wings." Cuz let me tell you something, man, the devil's after you. How are you doing in your relationship with God? How are you doing? Are you on fire for the Lord? Are you passionate for Him? Or do you got it in cruise control, man? Maybe you're backsliding. Are you? We need to be in this place where, you know, the devil does not have his way. And the first thing he'll want to do is to make you compromise. Lead you to little areas of compromise. You never would have done that before when you were on fire for the Lord, but now you're compromising. You know, you're not in the Word, you're not in prayer, and you know you're not. And if I was to ask you today, well, what's the Lord been showing you? You wouldn't even know what to say. Because a lot of times people are not in that relationship with God. We should always be able to say, you know what, this is what the Lord showed me this morning. This is what the Lord showed me. He's been showing me this week. God's been speaking to me. Why? Because this is not a religion. It's a relationship with God. You see, and as we have that understanding, you know, it's so cool. The devil will, you know, lead you to areas of compromise in so many ways. Be careful. Next thing you know, you're on the shelf. You're not even being used by God. You're not usable. Before you know it, you know, people, they distance themselves. They backslide. They deny the Lord. They fall away. It can happen to any of us. That's why I want to encourage you to allow the Lord to protect you. He wants to. This is what Jesus wanted to do for Israel often. But if you go back to Luke chapter 13, notice it says, Jesus said, but you were not willing. God says, hey, can I cover you? Hey, can I protect you? Hey, can I save you? Hey, can I lead you? Hey, can I bless you? A lot of times people say, no, I don't want, I don't want that. It wasn't the Lord's fault. It was, it was their fault. It has to do with salvation. It has to do with sanctification. You know, this is a very difficult verse for those people who say that God chooses those who go to heaven and doesn't choose others. You know, their reason is that God's will can never be thwarted. That if God wants them saved, by golly, they're going to be saved, you know? It's one of the tenets of Calvinism. It's called irresistible grace. But here we see Jesus saying, I wanted to save you. I wanted to protect you. But you were not willing. You know, it goes hand in hand with 2 Peter 3.9. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know, if there is anyone here today who does not know the Lord, Man, I encourage you today to give your life to Him. To trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. To turn from your sins and to give Him your heart. If you perish and end up in hell, don't blame it on God. It's His will for us to be saved. But it's our will that seals the deal. See? And when I read this right here in Luke... Thirteen, a couple of amazing things. Number one, it's amazing to me that God dies for us. And it's amazing to me, number two, that God cries for us. Man, I hope you see the compassion of Jesus Christ. You know, not only for those who I think He wants to get saved, but I think for all of us. You know, just to know that that's the type of God that we have. A God who dies for us. A God who cries for us. Because I know there's a few of you here that are going through very difficult times. And the Bible says that He keeps all your tears in a bottle. Psalm 56 verse 8, right? And the Bible says that He cries over you. Very compassionate our God is. You know, when you look at this right here, it's... Amazing, the Lord cries because their house would be left desolate. The Jews, Jerusalem, and the temple would be left desolate. The Greek word speaks of someone deprived of the aid and protection of others. In this case, God. You know, to me, it's a little ironic. I, ironic. I think if you really contemplate this, check it out. The Pharisees told Jesus that he was in danger, but who was really in danger? They were, huh? The Jews were about to be judged. And there's so much about this in the Bible, about when the Jews would be judged. Way back in the book of Leviticus, God had warned his people what would happen to them if they rejected him. Leviticus 26.31, I will lay your cities waste and bring your sanctuaries to desolation. And I will not smell the fragrance of your sweet aromas. In other words, I won't hear your prayers. I will bring the land to desolation. Your enemies who dwell in it shall be astonished. People are going to trip out because God judges. Isaiah 64.10 and 11, it says, Your holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful temple where our fathers praised you is burned up with fire and all our pleasant things are laid waste. You know, this specific judgment right here was prophesied in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. That's Jesus dying, but not for himself. Why? Because he died for us. And the people of the prince who is to come, that's the Romans, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's Jerusalem and the temple. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Jesus spoke about this in Luke 21, 5-6. through And as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I wish I could show you guys a a virtual illustration of what the temple looked like. I have it on my computer, but beautiful, beautiful. What Herod built was beautiful. And so one day, they're coming out of the temple and the apostles, they say to Jesus, man, look at this temple, Lord. Isn't it beautiful? And Lord says, let me tell you something about this temple right here. One day, every single stone will be taken down and thrown down. And I'm sure they were tripping out. But the Lord predicted what would happen in 70 AD. The Jews began to revolt against the Romans. So they surrounded the city. Mothers were eating their children. That's how bad it got. In the end, one million Jews died. The Romans came in under the leadership of their general Titus, who later became Caesar. They came in and they burned all the temple. Now the gold melted and went into the crevices between the rocks. And in order to get the gold out, they took down every single stone, just like Jesus said. You see, that's why the Lord mourns. He sees the heartache that we bring upon ourselves when we choose to disobey Him. You see, in looking at this right here, we see the courage of Jesus. Jesus. The commitment of Jesus, the cross of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. But then we close with the second coming of Jesus. It says right here in verse 35, And assuredly I say to you, you shall not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, for the Jews not to see Jesus was not a good thing. He says, You guys aren't going to see me anymore. Heavy, huh? They still don't see Jesus as their savior and that's not good for them now. But the day is coming. Jesus is coming. And that's, I thing is so beautiful because God's not done with Israel yet. You read Romans 9, 10, and 11. God's still dealing with Israel. We see things happen. 1948, they gain the land again. 1967, they regain Jerusalem again, right? You see things beginning to happen. You see all the signs of Jesus' return. And when Jesus comes, and, you know, He's gonna come, we're gonna get raptured, then the tribulation period's gonna begin. Three and a half years into the tribulation period, when the Antichrist says, I'm God, worship me. At that moment, a light will be turned on. And at that moment, three and a half years in a tribulation period, it's then that they're going to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. Finally. Finally. But before that, two-thirds of the Jews die. Think about that. But the Lord says to them, I'm coming again. And when I come the second time, then you're going to know who I am. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. And then they will look on me, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Zechariah thirteen six, And I will say to him, they're going to say to Jesus, Hey, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. It's going to be amazing. The time will come when the Messiah returns, and he's going to be recognized and received by the people. You see, Jesus is coming again. And what that means is that, man, everything's going to be the way it's supposed to be. I can't wait for that day, you guys. I can't wait for the day. You know, I think of little things. I think of big things. I think of, you know, when you get older, you know, you can't eat as much, huh? I get jealous of my son. I'm like, man, how come you get three burritos, man? And I only get one, you know, or maybe two. It's because, you know, he can eat and eat and eat and doesn't, it just doesn't go anywhere, right? In heaven, I wonder what it's going to be like. I wonder what it'll be like, the food, you know, the, the fellowship. No sin, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death, no more crying. I wonder what it's going to be like traveling from planet to planet, flying, all those types of things. I wonder what it's going to be like seeing the Lord, seeing Jesus, right, face to face. You know, when I look at this right here, I think, Lord, I love you so much. When I look at this right here, I think, Lord, your courage, your commitment, your cross, your compassion, your coming. And, Lord, I want, to, I want to ponder on these things, Lord, throughout the week for the rest of my life. Because, Jesus, I realize, really, that all this is about you. You guys probably heard that story. I, I, I remember hearing a story about a man. He was a great art collector. And he had all the good, you know, works of art. I love, uh, you know, Van Gogh. Have you guys ever seen Van Gogh, His painting? Beautiful, thick gobs of paint, or, or maybe Picasso or Rembrandt, right? Depending on what kind of style you like. This guy had all the great, you know, paintings, right? And and so one day he had an auction, and he was going to auction all of his paintings away, and so. You know they came in droves, and the millionaires and the people who had all the money. They came, and uh, what ended up happening was this guy—he uh, died—and he had this other guy, you know, come in and do the auction for him. And uh, and he said, before we, you know, do all these other great, you know, paintings and works of art, you know, we have a, a portrait of the sun. The son of the of the owner, and uh, and nobody really you know knew this work of art. They didn't really know the artist, so uh, he said, "Okay, let's begin the auction. You know, who will give me?" And you know, he gives an amount or whatever it is, and, and nobody wants it. I mean, there's silence in the room, you know, and, and and then eventually, you know, there's no response. You begin to hear people say, "Hey." You know, away with the sun. Give me the Rembrandts. Away with the sun. Give me the Picasso's. Away with the sun. Give me the Van Gogh's. And, and the man says, I'm sorry, my instructions, the stipulations of the will are, first, we have to auction off the sun. So nobody wanted it. I guess to them it wasn't worth a whole lot. But then eventually, you know, the, the custodian, the janitor in the back of the room, he knew the son. He knew him. I'll buy it. Can I buy it? I know I just work here, but, you know, can I buy it? I don't have a lot of money. Can I buy it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, how much? 20 bucks. And he buys the son. He buys the portrait of the son. And then the, the guy who auctions everything, he says, "Great, we're done. And I don't know how he does it. I don't know if he hits the hammer or whatever it is, you know. He says, my instructions in the will that were this, that whoever gets the sun gets everything. You guys, and that's the way it is for us. You got Jesus, and you got everything you need. And we see his example. My encouragement to you is to to fall in love with him. To follow him. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for your word, your grace, your love in our life. Thank you that this is not a religion. This is not a, a habit that we do on Sundays. It's a meeting with you, Lord God. It's a meeting with the people of God. And your word says where two or more are gathered in your name, that there you are in the midst of us in a special way. And so, Lord, I I pray that we would learn and and meditate on your courage, your commitment, your cross, your compassion, and your coming again. And, Lord, I pray that, Lord, all of us here, Lord, would be encouraged by you today. If there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's not a Christian, that today would be the day that they repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior because you don't want them to perish. Lord, I pray for all the Christians here today. Continue to help us not only to admire you, but to follow you, to do like you. Like we read about this missionary, Adoniram Judson, Uh, he wanted to be like Jesus. and So help us, Lord, I pray today. To know that we're accepted in the Beloved, and we're challenged by the Beloved. Thank you. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by this study. If you have any questions, please call us at Calvary Chapel, El Monte, at air code 626 454 34 Remember that Jesus loves you.